0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: It's a simple question. Should be a police be allowed to shame suspects on Facebook? The story begins. Um, a driver mows down six mailboxes, slurs her words, tells police she has a lizard in her bra, and then the police respond by saying something along the lines of, where does one hold a bearded dragon lizard while driving in their brassiere? Of course, police posted online, just itching to get in on this conversation is a man not unfamiliar to this program, Ross McLean, a former Toronto police officer. He is now a crime specialist. Ross, good afternoon. Have you calmed down yet?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's really quite the story, isn't it? I mean, I'm not sure where my bearded lizard is right now, mm. but I mean, we'll, we'll have to see on that. But it's, hey, listen, you know, I'll tell you something. As a cop, and I'm sure you've known enough uh, cops from your days uh, reporting news, uh, they've got some pretty funny stories, but not all are fit for public consumption or or do well on social media. Tech.
1: Now, um, civil rights advocates are saying that posting mug shots and written pejorative descriptions of suspects amounts to public shaming of police, who, of people rather, who have not yet been convicted. Do you agree with that?
0: Well, you know what? we have uh, I'm going to have to tell you, in the broad strokes, I do agree with it for a lot of reasons. We've seen cases that come up. Now, it's one thing if the police have got an Amber Alert out. Uh, you know, a violent husband has taken children. Social media fills up with it. Off it goes. There is no better use for social media and the police and the public to coordinate than to find uh, children like that. But we've also seen where what happens is small issues uh, become public shaming of people that can quite frankly ruin their lives Uh, and the punishment is greater than any punishment the court could ever give out to them so it's a real question
1: Now, the uh, as you mentioned, uh, the impact of having a mugshot posted, according to uh, a civil rights organization down in the States, it can be incredibly damaging for people that are parents, for people that have jobs, for people that have lives that they have come back to. I guess my next question is that what is the difference between a police officer posting that and somebody who is driving by takes out their camera and gets a video of this alleged drunk person doing something stupid? What's the difference?
0: Well, I think the difference is in the intent really is the intent to address an issue to reduce the problems of an issue of drinking and driving or let's even call it police violence or or whatever the issue is you want to do it. I think that really there needs to be to be uh maybe a more of an anonymous way when the police social media are doing it that they're not addressing it personally and identifying a person uh because that's where it really becomes public, it becomes public shaming. I mean, much like you used to hear about some parents, if their, their kid got caught stealing, they'd make him wear a sign and stand in the public square saying I was a thief or something, right? Mm-hmm. But, it, but it goes much further, and the uh, the crime, when it goes on social media, is forever, and the outcome is not published the same as what the allegation is.
1: Now, this happened in uh, just outside of Boston, in Taunton, Massachusetts, and uh, some people said They posted, great job getting drunks off the road and entertaining us. Uh, Somebody else wrote, hey, Taunton Police Department, your holier-than-thou attitude is part of the reason why people don't like slash don't respect police. Uh, Do you see where that person's coming from?
0: Well, absolutely. In fact, uh, when I I got called to talk about this segment with you today, I want to relate a story that was something that helped me out so much in my police career, When I was just starting, and I was a snot-nosed rookie who hadn't even really been in a police car before, I was going up to the police association in Toronto to sign my my union papers and stuff, and there was a party going on there, and it was a retirement for a cop who had done 35 years, and I bumped into him at his bar, his reception, and he said, I'm just leaving. I said, I'm just joining. Well, in any event, he says, I'm going to give you a couple of pointers here that will get you through your career. And one of the, the, one, the first pointer he gave me, which was a huge one, and I never forgot it, although I might have slipped up once or twice, he said, if you're going to give someone the ticket, give them the ticket. If you're going to give them the lecture, give them the lecture. But don't give them the lecture and the ticket, because people just won't stand for that. It's too much. So when you see, when the police, I think, on social media, when they do, the rare time go over the line, it's because somebody has already suffered the consequences of their actions, and they're getting the penalty of that. Plus, they're getting the lecture and the snarking and the public shaming. And I think that's where you have to be real careful about not crossing the line on social media.
1: So you're saying that there are police, in this case, the police officer may have a personal, I don't want to say agenda, but everybody's got something that they're dealing with that. Maybe that was maybe the reason why he posted that particular Facebook posting?
0: Well, I don't know why he posted that. But what I'm saying is sometimes it's unintended consequences. You don't realize that you may be identifying somebody in a way on top of the injury like i'm sure this woman with her accident she hit all these things i'm sure her insurance is through the roof i'm sure she got a, uh, a traffic ticket if not a criminal offense laid against her i'm sure she has to go before court and deal with it and if you're identifying that person and throwing snark on top of it that's not the time to throw the snark you either identify the crime and deal with it and give the ticket or give the punishment or you give the Give the lecture and give the snark and then let somebody go. Most people are okay with that. You're going to lecture me but not give me the ticket? I deserve the lecture. So I think that's where the issue comes in.
1: You know, it's interesting reading the story. Lieutenant Paul Roderick is a guy that made the post. He said that the woman uh, responsible for the crime uh, or the, the alleged offense uh, hit mailboxes, sending some airborne. Before her car left the road, tore up a lawn, and came to rest among trees. And when police arrived, she asked him to call a tow truck so she and a male companion could, as she said, be on their way. And he said, we can't move the car right now. If we do, what will you use to hold yourself up? Uh, so that's kind of, I guess, why he opposed to that. What what recourse does the police department, the, the officials, the the uh, brass, so to speak, what recourse do they have to this officer to say, you know what, it is Facebook, but you are representative of our police department, and maybe you shouldn't have done that? Or is there any recourse?
0: Well, no, I think there will be a recourse. Look, there there are every police department I know of in Canada, I'm sure most in the states, they, Before you can do any tweeting on behalf of the police department, identifying yourself as a police officer, social community, whatnot, you go for, for media training, social media training. And what they try to do there is obviously eliminate a lot of these mistakes that you can make. And as you know, uh, you're in broadcasting. You're a much wiser and smarter man today than you were, I'm sure, your first day on the mic <laughs> uh, when you were doing things. And I know I'm a lot brighter and smarter and wiser Uh, than I had been over time. So we do need to learn. And I think that forgiveness is something we need to learn as people and understand that, particularly in the policing instances, you'll catch people at their worst times. And look, I get contacted on a somewhat uh, irregular basis by by police forces and by people who've been arrested before and charged with serious criminal offenses. And they've subsequently been found uh, not guilty in court. And the police departments will reach out and say they've contacted us because you could you please take down this posting on your page? I feature a lot of that on my Facebook page, Crime Power and Politics. And if I can, if I can correctly find out that the person was found not guilty, I will take it off uh, the page if they had been found not guilty. Because that's the problem: the internet is forever, and uh, the crimes can sound horrible, and it can really impact your life in much greater penalty than really what you're. Your actions deserved.
1: You know, another example here. We're reading about a, a 24-year-old uh, got nearly kicked out of cosmetology school. Instructors saw his mug shot on Facebook. He was charged; drugs were found during a police search of a house he was visiting to style a client's hair. Most of the charges were dismissed before trial. He was acquitted of, of the final charge. I uh, guess my question is: if somebody is is charged by the police and the charges are 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 subsequently dropped, but still. Um, <sighs> How much? How damaging is it? And I think you've kind of touched on this already. You post somebody's face uh, there or they're allegedly uh, charged with something and then the charges get dropped. Uh, in the court of public opinion, I know a lot of employers check Facebook pages. Um, is that almost getting really invasive where things get posted and maybe they shouldn't be?
0: Well, maybe they should be posted, but you need a way of redressing them and taking them down. You know, one of the issues, some of the different search engines, and Google is like this. When you do a search on a name, it'll post you in the in the top, you know, ten results or so. Uh, you know, if there's a social media or a LinkedIn profile or something, but they also include in the top ten results any prominent news stories about that person or that name. So if your name happened to go into a a newspaper saying that you were arrested, that's going to come right up on the top line on the front page of the search for you every time. Now, and and it may well be that you were not found guilty, that there was a problem. Uh, You know, it's an issue. I mean, I see that there's one police force here in the Ontario region that lately they've been posting a lot of pictures of people being accused of shoplifting from convenience stores. You know, pictures of their faces saying so-and-so is wanted for shoplifting. But you know what? The people have not been convicted yet. I I, I assume you're going on the word of the clerk who was working there. You know, it's a long way to go, but that's going to stay up on that person's name forever. And it's a lot of work to get that down. So we all have to be a little bit more responsible when we're posting stuff and and also have the uh, the courage to take stuff down when it's been corrected and something's not right.
1: If somebody is charged with something, just for the sake of argument here, let's just, uh, say that I've been charged with, as you say, shoplifting something. It's all over Facebook. I get my my day in court. How much of that can be used as evidence, the fact that people snap the picture of me taking something, uh, being held by police, what have you? Uh, do the courts look at that as possible evidence?
0: Well, certainly, yeah, if it's taken off of a a CCTV system and you can prove the continuity and the accuracy of it and someone can speak to it. I mean, you still have all the rules of evidence that apply. But as I'm saying, the problem here is that the court of public opinion dishes out a much harsher charge than, than any court could. Let's go back and look at this guy. And it wasn't yeah, actually the police were involved in this one. Remember the infamous beer can tosser at the Blue Jays game?
1: Yep. Ken Pagan. Yep.
0: Remember that. Remember the hunt and the social media tear that went on to find this guy. Mm-hmm. The police did post his picture. Say they said, "Well, hold on, we got your picture. You better turn yourself in." Well, he has paid a huge penalty for that. And you know, the funny part is, had he just at the time, when the security staff came by and said, "Who threw the beer?" and he stuck his hand up, they just would have tossed him from the game and given him a trespassing uh, ticket, and that would have been it. Would have been the end of it. But because he didn't. And everybody went on the hunt. He lost his job. He had to move. He's now doing, I think, a thousand hours of community service. I mean, and you can argue what you want about that, but I mean, it's really the penalty is much harsher than 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 the crime. So, what,
1: uh, Ross? What's the lesson for the general public in in this? As you mentioned, we're all wiser. We all sometimes do things that maybe we should have thought of not doing before, and I'm, I'm including all of us in this. Is there a general lesson for people to understand when it comes to what's posted on social media?
0: Yeah, I, I think personally, like I said, you know, he without sin, throw the first stone, if you will. We have to have more of an issue of forgiveness. And before you do the retweet or start laughing at someone's expense, really have a look at it and see if it's something that you're, you're helping to correct an issue or if you're piling on. You know, uh, uh, Joe Warmington, a great writer for the Toronto Sun. I remember I met Don Cherry, talked to Don Cherry about some things. And one of Don Cherry's biggest rules in life, if it's in hockey or in the media, if someone's being piled on in a fight, you don't add to the fight. You stand back. You know, you you don't pile on. So that's what you have to look for in your own behavior. And it's going to be up to each of us to sort of... uh, Guard that for ourselves to help make us a better community.
1: Great advice. Ross McLean, crime specialist, former Toronto police officer, and now a security expert at RossMcLeanSecurity.com. A fascinating look at, uh, at social media and crime and some words of advice as well. Have a great weekend, Ross. We appreciate the time. Cheers. Everybody be safe. Wow, that's a fascinating look at that story. Um, yeah, it's funny. And there are some police forces and and I'll give credit to um, our friend, uh, Sergeant Kerry Schmidt at the OPP. He doesn't do stuff like that, but his social media postings about accidents and what to avoid and what happened— Uh, He does an outstanding job. Halton Regional Police, they do a great job with their social media. Sometimes a little funny, not poking fun at somebody or not piling on at somebody. But uh, there is a fine line, and and those two uh, forces do a really great job. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A former Soviet uh, counterintelligence officer was at a meeting with Donald Trump Jr. and the Russian lawyer. I'm really confused about this, and I'm sure a lot of people are as well, because they're not quite sure exactly what went on with this. So we wanted to bring in George Breckenridge, a retired political science professor at McMaster University, to kind of walk us through this. George, good afternoon. How are you?
2: I'm fantastic.
1: So let's, uh, first of all, talk about this. What, first of all, let's go back. This meeting that happened uh, in June of 2016 between uh, President Donald Trump's son and a Russian-American lobbyist. What do we know about that initial meeting?
2: Well, um, this has come out fairly recently. Um, And and anyway, we don't need to get into how it's come out. But um, he, when the email, the, the most crucial thing was when his emails were, public, when he publishes emails, because the New York Times was about to do that, it's, it explains exactly why he took the meeting. And, and that's the problem, because he was told in the email, it was a, it was a, in many ways a very clumsy kind of, come on, that anybody with much more political experience or who was uh, aware of the dangers of talking to the Russians, particularly, would have... You know, the red alert would have gone off, but it's a very clumsy thing, saying, you know, they were, this lawyer, Russian lawyer wanted to meet with him in order to uh, give some dish, some dirt on, on Hillary Clinton. And he replied, you know, I love it, I'm coming, you know. <laughs> and he brought, not only that, but he brought his brother-in-law, Jared Kushner, and the, the man, Manafort, who was at that time the campaign manager. So this was high level, a high-level meeting on their part. And uh, when they got there, they, they, uh, they apparently uh, the, the lawyer, the Russian woman r- lawyer was, and I think this is probably true, was really only interested in trying to get some of the sanctions lifted and, you know, trying to, to test them on that kind of question. But now it turns out we hear here this morning. Uh, this this American who's formerly Russian, formerly intelligence officer, was also at the meeting. What was he doing there? You know, what, what was his role? And so, but the mere fact that Don Jr. took this meeting, um, and we have you know clear evidence now. I mean, all the other meetings that, that the people around Trump and everything like that had with the Russians looked very fishy. I mean, why would they be having so many meetings with the Russians of all people? But there was no evidence as to what went on at the meetings, or exactly what they thought they were doing. Whereas in this particular case, it's with the release of of Don Jr.'s emails, it's very clear what he thought he was doing. And now he says that I mean that in in his interview on Fox News, he said, "Well, you know, in business, you know, when there's information out there, you go and get it." You know, so he had no sense either of the impropriety. Our potential impropriety of meeting with a foreign government, you know somebody from a foreign country, which is uh, you know you can't get uh, you're not allowed to take uh, foreign assistance for elections. it's illegal. Mm-hmm. you know so you could argue that you know this was getting pretty close to that, but also um, just the the, uh, the inappropriateness of of particularly seeking uh, what they thought was uh, going to be some more dirt on Hillary.
1: Not it's uh...
2: the other. And his father clearly knew about the meeting. I don't think there's any doubt about that because the next day his father said, or, or somewhere in there, close in there, said, next week I'm going to be giving this speech really get some a lot of new bad information on Hillary. Now he never did that because they didn't get any new information on Hillary. But the fact that he was thought he went, they were going to get something. To my mind, is an indication that he must have known about the meeting. And anyway, these, these are these are the people closest to Trump in any case, at the time. You know, his family and his campaign manager. Surely they would have told him.
1: I'm 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 curious, um, and, and, and there's a couple of points I want to hone in on you, George. But first yeah. of all, um, if they said that they had quote unquote dirt on on Hillary Clinton, yeah. two two part uh, question here. A what dirt could they have had on Hillary Clinton, <laughs> and B, how did they get that dirt? Because I go back, and I know you do as well. I don't want to, you know, t- uh, talk about us being in a uh, particular age demographic here, but we both go back to Watergate and how yeah. they got that information. Yeah, so, yeah. so I'm curious now what they had on Hillary Clinton and how they got it. Any thoughts? Well, they,
2: it turns out this meeting didn't have anything. I mean, that was that was the thing. It was. It seemed to be, and they not only promised that, but they said, you know, the, the email said. And this is part of the Russian effort to help, you know, help Trump. You know, it so it's a very clumsy come-on. I thought, I thought, but apparently they didn't get anything at that meeting. I mean, what, could, what the Russians didn't have anything on Hillary, but what they were doing, of course. Is, is uh, around the same time was uh, uh, hacking into the Democratic National Committee and her campaign, campaign manager and stuff like that, and they didn't find anything terribly awful, I don't think, but it, it played into the story that um, Hillary was not to be trusted. You know that that it played, you know, which had been around. People had hammered away at that for years and years and years, and so it clearly disadvantaged But in terms of new. Bad information. I don't think there was any, any that they had, and and nothing apparently came up with that meeting. But it's more the fact that he was willing to take a meeting, you know, looking for, you know, for negative information but a candidate from the agent of
1: a foreign country of some kind. It's, um, you know, the word and and what you talked about here, the word that comes out to me is naivety with uh, yeah, yeah. With, with Donald Trump Jr. And, and the whole campaign. We know that they've made millions of dollars, allegedly, because the tax returns haven't come out, but yeah. they've made a lot of money in business, and they obviously have business smarts and business acumen. Yeah. I'm surprised at how neat, naive they are, that they could get away with a meeting with a, a foreign power.
2: Well, but, no, I think you're right. And I think that's one of the interesting things about, about this whole business, about why were there so many people meeting with Russians? You know, you know, given the history of the United States and Russia and the recent history of what Russia has been doing, why were there so many meetings? And it seems to me that, obviously, the Trump people and people like Manafort and other people around them don't think of Russia that way at all. They think of Russia as a source of money. I'm sure, you know, the two sons at different times in the past have boasted about how much Russian money they were using in their business. And I'm sure Trump's uh, you know, uh, tax returns, if they were ever released, would show that as well. So they, 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 they weren't interested in the politics of Russia or, or you know Ukraine and stuff like that. That was very secondary to, to them, I think. They simply, they simply saw no reason why they couldn't go on doing business with Russia. And therefore, once he became president, the obvious thing to do is to... You know you know, and, and the rush, what the Russians want them to do, of course, is to ease the sanctions and things like that. Now, because of the whole controversy, of course, they've not been able to do any of that because it would look it would, it would just scream, you know' treason more or less, but uh, I think it's, that's, that, that's so that you can call that naive, and in a political sense, of course, it is totally naive. They, they didn't seem to have any sense as to why Russia was a no-no, you know why Russia in particular. Now, I say it goes even beyond that because you're not allowed to deal with any foreign government uh, in that kind of way. You know, the electoral law is very clear about that but why they didn't have uh, more taboos about Russia. I think it's all to do with their business connections.
1: Our guest is George Breckenridge, retired political science professor at McMaster University. George, I, what's your gut feeling as to why Donald Trump hasn't released his tax returns? Because that was a big <laughs> thing during the election campaign. Oh,
2: I know, I know. And, of course, every other presidential candidate for 40 years has released a tax return, and, and many, often many years of tax returns, because it would show... His business connections to not only Russia, but I suspect the you know, Saudi Arabia, and possibly a lot of other dodgy characters. I think you know it would it would it would make bring people closer to that. I'm sure that's the reason that he dared. He knew he dared release his tax returns. Because it would just open up a whole Pandora's box of connections, which looked, you know, looked fishy or whatever like that. I'm sure that's the case.
1: George, we're going to ask you to kind of shift gears now, because as okay. I, 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 we mentioned, you, you've been a poli site prophet, Mac, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, how, what do they do about North Korea? And, ah. and, 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 and i understand i don't want to use the pun here that's a loaded question but yeah. but that's something that it's a thorn in the side and uh, to use a term from the godfather three it's like a pebble in their shoe that just keeps they uh, they can't remove it yet what do you think is going to happen with north korea
2: well i don't think they can really do anything i mean you know he started off as maybe any new president would have done By pointing out that the only people who can really do anything about North Korea are the Chinese, and the Chinese don't want to do that. They don't want to destabilize. They don't want to crush North Korea because what would happen if they did? They'd get millions of people flooding into China, refugees flooding into China, and or and also into South Korea, and it would unify the peninsula, and uh, South Korea. You know, so the whole peninsula would become like South Korea. You see, eventually. And and that's exactly what they don't want right on their border, you know, with with all the American connections. So so the well the only people who can really do anything, who could really have any possible influence, and it's not even clear how much they've got uh, with North Korea are the Chinese, and the Chinese, as they have their own reasons for for tolerating the current situation. Now I'm sure they're worried about the nuclear issue as well. There are signs of they obviously they don't want that either in their neighborhood. You know, that's, that's destabilizing. So Trump going to you saying, well, you know, this is China's problem. You know, I really hope they will deal with it. And, of course, China, you know, its, it's that situation hasn't changed. So they're really not going to do anything very much. Um, they're doing more than they used to, but it's still far short of, of, of really destabilizing North Korea. And so the question is, then, what do you do? And, of course, the answer, the alternative answer would be, well, you you know, you Get, you try and, and eliminate their nuclear weapons, but it's way beyond that. It's far too late for that. I mean, that worked in, the, you know, in Iraq in the past and, and other places, but it's far too late for that with North Korea because they have you know all kinds of stuff, tunneled under mountains and all kinds of things like that. And also, the, the first strike, the first thing the North Koreans would do would be to strike Seoul, you know, South, South Korea, and millions of people could be killed. You know, so you can't do that either, and so, <laughs> so you're stuck. That, that's really the problem. And uh, some people have been resurrecting the idea recently, uh, Farid Zakaria and people like that, who are in in the Washington Post, saying, well, you know, we've got to because we can't do either. China will not do anything decisive because we can't really do anything in a military way because it risks not only nuclear war but it risks really you know, enormous damage to South Korea. Um, we have to learn to live with them in some kind of way, and try and try again to persuade them, uh, you know, not to, <laughs> not to not to, to stop, you know, to stop developing their program. But well, of course, from their point of view, the only se- the only security they've got for the, for their regime, you know, their 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 crazy evil regime, is nuclear weapons.
1: Will economic sanctions continue to work against North Korea?
2: Well, I don't think so. They're pretty, you know, they're, they're, there's, there's all kinds of ways around it. One of the ways, for example, is they, they send North Koreans uh, abroad to work, you know, under very heavy management. And they, that brings back a lot of money into the country. You know, there are a lot of things like that. There are a lot of ways in which you, you can do that. Now, the, uh, the other way is most of the business that is done is done with China. And so you could. Uh, so sort of been talk about about sanctioning Chinese companies who do that, but but again, China is not going to be happy with that at all. And um, you know there are other reasons for wanting to get on with China. And um, so it, it's very it's, it's a real puzzle as to what to do. And the, so the notion of well, we got to accept it as a fact. You know, we we surely believe in the long run uh, this will in, this will collapse of its own contradictions, like the Soviet Union eventually did. But it's taken a long time, <laughs> and and all you can really do is try the other method of of, of sort of dialogue and things like that.
1: Fascinating look at uh, is, at uh, the political world. Do you miss teaching, George? Because it sounds like you're still...
2: Oh, I do, still do it part-time. I'm not doing it at the minute, but I'm doing it again in January. So, oh, X.
1: Ex- yeah. I would love to take one of your classes just to <laughs> sit there and just be a fly
2: on the wall and listen.
1: <laughs> I appreciate your time and, and the insight on uh, some of the political issues uh, in North America and around the world. George Breckenridge retired, but back to work in January. Polish sci prof at McGrath University. <laughs> Enjoy the summer, and thank you for the insight. Appreciate okay. it. Okay. Wow, that's a fascinating look at. uh, I cannot. All of us, like, what's with the Trumps? You don't. You don't talk to a foreign power like. Are they that naive? Are they? Did they have a yen to hear about what Hillary Clinton did? clearly they did. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHL. Marvin Ryder joins us from the McMaster DeGroote School of Business. We wanted to uh, talk about the Donald Trump situation, but first of all, let's kind of weigh in, Marvin. Let's go back a, a little bit, just to kind of tie what we talked about yesterday with Sears Canada and what was happening going into creditor protection. But now, and of course the immediate response from a lot of people is, how dare they? On uh, Ontario, judge has given Sears Canada permission to pay retention bonuses to key employees. While they continue restructuring, that'll put thousands of people out of work without severance. They're saying it could be worth $9.2 million. Your your Mm -hmm. reaction to that?
3: Well, this, of course, isn't the first time you've heard this. If you can remember the Stelco restructuring that went on for two and a half years, there were retention bonuses there. The concept of a retention bonus is pretty simple. There are certain key employees. Let's say it's the CEO, the chief financial officer, uh, your controller, people like that who are in a critical function, but they also know the company's in hard times, and maybe they're 42 and they're saying, I might not have a job when this is all done, so I'm going to start looking for a job. And if they leave in the middle of the restructuring, then what do you do? It's not easy to plop a new chief financial officer or a new controller into their job. So the the, the current state of business is that you pay them extra money. We call it a retention bonus. Uh, it's usually around their salary, uh, so they wind up making almost a double salary during the period of the restructuring uh, Knowing, by the way, that they may not have a job at the end of it, but that I can't, I just can't take the time out of restructuring to start looking for people to fill those key slots. It adds up to a lot of money. You point out $9.2 million. And if I'm a retiree that says, look, I, I don't have benefits after September 30th. What am I supposed to do about my drugs and my dental? You know. Divert some of that money to me. I understand that. But the other side of this is if they can find some way to keep Sears going, those benefits can get reinstated. At least that's what's happened here in Hamilton.
1: It almost seems, um, we talked off air, that you use the term holding somebody for ransom when you're negotiating this deal. Um, And and that doesn't get out in the public that that this... um, In this case uh, the chief financial officer or something is knowing that he's going to be leaving but he's working on this that doesn't get out in the public and when it does obviously it creates a bit of a storm.
3: No absolutely I, I was involved with a merger of two credit unions at one time in my life and knowing that at the end of it we weren't going to need two of all these different people but up until the day of the merger we did need two of these different people we paid these bonuses and I give these people great credit that they said all right I'll show loyalty to you I'll stay up until the time I'm done yes I'm making more money but then when when this merger is over i may be unemployed for nine months a year a year and a half um they could instead have done what was best for them individually and that was to find the job immediately i give people credit who stay i do understand you're paying a ransom to keep them but in key positions it's just so critical
1: i'm not sure there's anything else you can do there's one uh, other example before we shift topic and that is uh what's going on with the uh uh, Mr. Paul Godfrey uh, in, um, in Toronto, the Financial Post, um, uh, Post Media, uh, he's making a lot, underscore, a lot of money. And the perception is that he is being paid a lot of money while a lot of people are losing their jobs. What can they do from a PR standpoint? Because he's, he's getting just absolutely ripped on this, yeah. as, as is the company.
3: Yeah, I, and I again I understand that that you take a look at a CEO's salary, whether it's a hospital CEO or the CEO of a private corporation, and you say, my gosh, they're making six million dollars. I'm on the shop floor. I'm making thirty thousand dollars a year. You're getting rid of two hundred of us. Well, that's that's your salary. Why why don't you give back some of your salary? the The question of CEO compensation is always that of the board. They have to figure out who they want to lead an organization and what they want to pay for that. I can tell you in the case of, say, hospital CEOs, I've never begrudged them the money. We had a gentleman here in Hamilton named Murray Martin who was the CEO of the Hamilton Health Sciences. During his term, we were able to attract $500 million of provincial funding. Now, we paid him $750,000 a year, but even over the 10 years he was here, and added that up to $7.5 million, $500 million back into this community, that was a pretty good trade-off. So if you've got the right skill set, you've got to pay for it. It's just like, and again, I also find this fascinating, no one ever complains about sports stars earning these outrageous salaries. Some kid, truly a kid, 21 years old, plays hockey, He makes $13.5 million a year, but really adds no value to society. (laughs) Say what you want about Paul Godfrey, but you're running a corporation. It does add value on different levels. Why do we begrudge him that salary and not the hockey player? I don't know. It's an interesting question of our values.
1: That actually is. All right, let's talk about... uh, uh, there's the the yin and the yang and the back and forth. President Trump is promising to tax steel imports again a week after the prime minister said he believed Canada will escape escaped uh, expected steel tariffs imposed yep. by the U.S. Your take on that.
3: So Donald Trump was elected with the promise of making America great again. And one of the things he used to say, and it, it played very well in the industrial heartland of the United States, is, you know, we used to make things. And now they're making them all over the rest of the world and they're shipping them back to us. And that's not right And this got into a lot of what's called protectionism talk. Protectionism can be quotas, it can be tariffs, it can be taxes. And many people said, yeah, damn right, you you put those taxes on and bring that stuff back here. So, specifically on the question of steel, Donald Trump uh, created a hit list. He said, here are 10 countries, here are 10 countries from whom we import steel. And uh, damn it, it's not right. It's not right. So three weeks ago, he said, I'm going to impose a tariff for national security purposes, not strictly economic purposes, national security purposes. Uh, Instantly, that got quite a reaction. First, it got a reaction inside the United States. Fifty economists who had been advisors to presidents going back to uh, Kennedy signed a letter. Some Republicans, some Democrats signed a letter and said, Donald, don't do this. You know, steel is a very important part of our organization. If you put these tariffs on, we're still going to need the steel. All that means is that domestic people are going to pay a lot more. You're actually going to cause problems inside the country doing that. Go after individuals, but don't put a blanket tariff on everybody because most people are playing by the rules. Well, he thought about that. And then he went to the G20 summit. And, and of course, the G20 summit was not a successful summit for Donald Trump. He was quite isolated in there. But he had a number of meetings, including a meeting with Justin Trudeau, in which apparently he assured Justin that, you know, I'm not really worried about Canada here. You're good guys. You're our neighbors to the north. We love you. Even though we are the single largest exporter of steel into the United States, 17% of American imports of steel come from Canada. So we're the biggest source of that. So that was last week, and we kissed, and we made up, and we hugged, and everything seemed to be fine. Melania was smiling, and then uh, he goes and has uh, dinner at the Eiffel Tower, and he gets out of this, perhaps because they've been attacking his son this week in the United States about meeting with Russians. Now he's back talking about a tariff. You watch. You watch. I'm in Washington this weekend on Monday. You watch. So what's going on? Today there's a meeting of the American governors. Uh, They're meeting in Rhode Island, all 50 governors. Both Justin Trudeau and Kathleen Wynne are there. They're there for two purposes. Narrowly speaking, this question about tariffs on steel. Broadly speaking, NAFTA. NAFTA, we believe, the Senate is going to give um, the President approval to start the negotiations on NAFTA in about, in about four weeks, around the middle of August. So rather than wait until the negotiations begin, what they're trying to do is soften up everybody now. You go down, you make your case, you win over governors, Republican and Democrat. In fact, uh, uh, Premier Wynne, who's, we could say, a liberal and thus more of a Democrat, uh, has specifically got five meetings with Republican governors to make the case that Canada is not the evil empire. And all five of these governors, by the way, are governors with whom Ontario is their single biggest trading partner. Just to remind them about the role here before any
1: of this gets going. Uh, So would some of those be perhaps Ohio, Michigan, the uh, steel belt, iron belt? Some of them. I mean, one would come as a shock to you, I think, is
3: the governor of Colorado, but it's because he's going to wind up being the chair of this governor's association next year. He's a Republican, but he's going to chair it next year. Right. And So you make a friend now, and then next year when we're into the NAFTA negotiations, there's no point talking to the – outgoing chair, you want to talk to the incoming chair. So, you know, that would be one example, but yes, and then same thing, um, Prime Minister Trudeau was there this morning. He spoke after Vice President Mike Pence, and then they both went and had lunch together <laughs> to, to talk about steel and tariffs and NAFTA. Uh, I think, again, I give, and I know a lot of people are not necessarily the biggest fans of Justin Trudeau, but I give him great credit at this point. What Donald Trump does in business is he gets his competitors scared. And before any negotiation begins, he gets competitors putting concessions on the table. You know, well, look, Donald, I really want to deal with you, so look, I'll, I'll give you this. I'll give you this. We did not even started negotiating, but I'm already giving you things. Both Prime Minister Trudeau and President uh, Peña Nieto in, in uh, Mexico have kept their powder dry. They say once the negotiation begins, we'll talk about what we have to talk about. We want some things out of the deal. I know you want some things out of the deal. Let's get down and start negotiating. And that's great. If we start putting concessions, and I was worried because there was a poll done this week of Canadians, nearly two-thirds of Canadians said they would be okay with concessions to keep the free trade deal alive. I'm glad to hear that, but let's not tell Donald about that until we begin negotiating. We just don't want to go in there from a position of weakness.
1: Loaded question here. Um, It's been a long time since it uh, came into effect has NAFTA been good for this country or not? Yeah, so
3: again, I know there'd be a lot of people who would say no, but every study we've shown is that Canada has had net positive benefits out of this, that we are a stronger economy than we were. Now, the losers are things where we didn't really have a competitive advantage. You know, Ted, at one time we had a textile industry where we bought American cotton, brought it to Canada, milled it, finished it, turned it into sheets and towels. Of course, that's tremendously expensive since we don't have domestic cotton. We've got to import it. Because it was so expensive, we put big honking tariffs on American products to make our Canadian products competitive. Now that we have free trade, yes, unfortunately, that industry has died. We don't make towels and sheets in Canada much anymore. But from Canadian standpoint, you're getting a better value. We don't hawk up the price on these things. We let you pay what they're supposed to. So where we have an advantage, and for us in particular, is technology products. Telecommunications is one of the things... I know we take it all for granted, but we are a very small population in the second-largest geography of the world, and to learn how to communicate from every corner to every corner in our country, this is something that people are consuming around the world, and that's still something we do very well.
1: I always ask our experts this question, and you um, have looked at this, obviously, from from a business standpoint. Uh, Will Donald Trump be in the White House uh, when his mandate expires, the first first mandate, three years Mm -hmm. from now?
3: Mm Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually, I'll, I'll say something controversial here. I'm not quite sure he's going to be in the White House at the end of his first ah. mandate. Um, you know, I think Donald Trump uh, wanted to be president, perhaps for the wrong reasons. You know, he liked the title. He wanted the prestige. I think he had a, a, a certain view of what being president was going to be. And I think he has been shocked at it. I think he thought, um, and I think most of us thought, by the way, that President of the United States was the most powerful person in the world. How many times have you heard that said, oh, the most powerful person in the world? And yet I think what we're learning is, is the bureaucracy that it has all the power. It's not one individual person. Uh, Donald Trump certainly has put a stamp on the direction of the government of the United States, but he's far from leading it. As you can see in the Senate, they can't come up with a health care bill. They all know they want to repeal Obamacare, but they can't come up with a health care bill that, they can, that fifty what is it 52 Republicans can agree on. So I think it's been very interesting. Donald Trump, he, he wants victories. I think I view Donald Trump like this. He's a person who says, bring me a problem, let's get a solution. So if his trade negotiators, after they spend six months on NAFTA, come back and say, Donald, we've got a great deal here, he'll proclaim a victory and move on. He isn't going to be personally involved. He's going to take the advice of the people he's put in power, and that's really the people we have to negotiate
1: with. Last question for you, and you actually brought up an interesting term, Obamacare, because those of us in this country sometimes, and I'll admit that I don't understand a lot of the machinations that's involved with (laughs) with the U.S. health care system. What is so bad about Obamacare, and what does Donald Trump want to change if it's so bad? Well, there were
3: two things. So in in some parts of the United States, in particular some more rural parts of the United States, there was really only one health care provider. So the whole concept of Obamacare was to make sure people got coverage, but what they also hoped was that there would be competition to keep the cost of that coverage down. In some more rural areas, there's only one provider, and as such, the prices have gone up. So Donald Trump says, I want to come up with a new system that brings more private competition, the prices down, but gives you the same coverage. What the Republicans are discovering is they can't find a way to make all that happen. They can give you the same coverage, but they can't necessarily get all the competition and they can't necessarily get the prices down. Every every study of the Senate bill has come up said that you'd see somewhere between 9 and 12 million people who now have health care under Obamacare lose their health care. I even saw a wonderful piece where they interviewed some people who voted for Donald Trump, and they said, we love Mr. Trump, we don't want to change him as president, we agree with all of his external policies, but on this one, he's wrong. Don't change it, because, you know, my husband, he gets uh, drugs that he'd never be able to afford. Otherwise, we need the care that we've got, and we can afford the care we've got. Don't change this part. It'll be a very interesting drama to play out down south of the border.
1: Well, I know you're off, as we say, you're off to Poland for a while. When you come back, it'll be interesting to see if... uh, (laughs) If anything has calmed down from the White House, because at the very least, it's given us fodder for discussion.
3: You know it's Summer is supposed to be golfing season. Yeah. Maybe he'll go out and play more golf.
1: <laughs> ah, apparently, they 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 have the numbers. He's been golfing a lot in his he first, first uh, s- several months of his mandate. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, thank you. Enjoy now your trip to Poland. Um, have a wonderful time, thank and you. I know we'll be talking about something when we come back.
0: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.